Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, the Senate-negotiated border deal lands with a thud. Both Biden and Trump get big wins over the weekend in different arenas. The U.S. strikes Iranian proxies in Syria and Iraq. Parents groups are appalled. Black Lives Matter week of action is going forward. And the squad has a bad week. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. morning, everybody. Welcome in. Thanks for joining us for another week of Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Bean. My landing place is North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and society. Hope you had a great weekend this weekend and that you're ready for another week of news and commentary to... Yeah, that's what we're going to try to do here today. We're going to crank it up. Also serve as the policy consultant for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. I've stopped and think about that because my title changed this year, so I, I, I don't want to throw out the wrong title. Uh, I'm sure all of you watched the Grammys last night. Not. Uh, the big news, of course, Taylor Swift got uh, her fourth album of the year, and that uh, puts her ahead of people like Frank Sinatra, uh, who else? Stevie Wonder. She was tied with them with like three albums of the year in the Grammys, and uh, so now she's moved ahead with her fourth, and I think she got the 12th uh, pop album of the year or something like that. Anyway, she was a big winner last night. Miley Cyrus was a big winner, and um, that's about all you need. Joni Mitchell, 80 years old, came out and uh, sang last night, and uh, the reviews are that her voice is as strong as ever, even though she's like 80 years old now. So she was part of the Grammys last night. And that's all. That's it. I, we'll see what the ratings say, but they've been tanking uh, all of these awards show because they've decided to be nothing more than mouthpieces for progressives. Uh, they've pretty much all gone in the tank in terms of ratings because they can't figure out that. Well, I, I, let, let me take that back. I think they do know that people don't want that, but they don't care. They would rather have fewer people watch and have an echo chamber where they can sound out their progressive ideology than they would to have actually people watch the Grammys for what it's supposed to be, which is supposed to recognize great music. And since there's not a whole lot of great music to recognize, um, then that's another reason that people are not spending a whole lot of time watching the Grammys where people come out and wear next to nothing and think that that's art uh, or that it showcases something uh, shall we say, other than their talent. All right, let's uh, get into the, to the news because we've got plenty to talk about today. Look, we're going to talk about the border deal because the text came out late yesterday. I started reading it. I got through about 70 pages of 370 pages. So I haven't read the whole thing, but I found a good synopsis that was done, believe it or not, in the New York Times. Now, I'm not going to read their opinion and commentary because um, that would hurt you. But I am going to talk about some of the details because uh, looking at Politico, The Times, National Review, Daily Wire, Daily Signal, New, um, News, uh, let's see, where else did I look? Uh, well, I said National Review, didn't I? Anyway, a lot of the sources that I checked, including Fox News, uh, The Times had the most information. So that's what I want to get to you is all of the facts or as many of them as I can that came out in the bill. But we're going to do that. Coming up next, right now I want to talk about the U.S. attacks on Iran's proxies. The U.S. responded to the death of three U.S. soldiers and the wounding of dozens more by attacking Iran proxies with U.S. and British forces as they conducted attacks on 85 targets in seven different locations in Iraq and Syria. Now, they stayed out of Iran, and that's causing a lot of controversy, a lot of the critics of the White House say that it's not doing any good, going to do any good to keep hitting the Houthis and some of these other militant groups in Syria and Iraq unless the administration is willing to attack Iran. Now, this time, according to the Pentagon, they did attack some Iranian forces and Iranian assets in Syria, 
and in Iraq, but I'm getting ahead of myself here just a little bit. Command headquarters, storage depots, housing drone that house drones and munitions, um, intelligence outpost, and other locations connected to the militants are, that were located in Iraq and Syria were attacked. Facilities known to be operated by the Iranian Quds Force were also targeted. Now, this is kind of this is something new. Uh, the administration is escalating a little bit its response to these attacks by going after the Quds Force, because that's the next step would be to attack Iran directly. But they they did take out uh, the supplier because they know that the Quds Force in Iraq and Syria are the suppliers of weapons and intelligence and munitions for all of the militant groups. No Iranian military bases located in Iran were targeted, but the Quds Force uh, storage depots, they went after them. So the timing and the methods of the attack have come under fire from critics. Once again, the administration telegraphed its moves by announcing last week that they would attack targets in, in uh, Syria and Iraq. And, of course, that gave ample opportunity to personnel and weapons to be moved to a safer location. And there are plenty of reports out there saying that that's exactly what happened, that the militants heeded the warnings and fled the facilities, meaning that the result of the attack was mainly to damage infrastructure and facilities. The Wall Street Journal launched on the Biden administration. I mean, they issued a scathing editorial saying at one point that the militia members can't say they weren't warned, and if, they, and if any of them were still around when the attacks came, they're the world's dumbest terrorist. Think Jeff Durham and Ahmed, the dead terrorist. I mean, th th that's the level that the Wall Street Journal kind of applied to this attack, the kind of terrorist you would have to be if you're hanging around once the United States says, hey, we're coming and we're going to blow things up. Um, so a lot of criticism about that. Now, let, let me say that, the, well, the White House defended the attacks, calling their critics armchair quarterbacks. Uh, Iran said the attacks were a strategic mistake that will have no results other than increased tensions and and activity in the region. Iraqi officials claim 16 people were killed in the attacks in their country. Included in that number is an unknown number of civilians. Um, so, you know, if you if you got to hear Senator Graham over the weekend, uh, he came out and he said there was one terrorist. So, so maybe 15 civilians and one terrorist. Um, he doesn't know that for a fact, but he did have kind of a an interesting line about it, calling him. Uh, not just the dumbest terrorist, but adding some colorful metaphors as part of his description. Syrian officials said they would no longer tolerate U.S. forces' occupation of Syria. All right. Um, in the middle of all the rhetoric and in the middle of all the attacks, here's the thing I think we need to consider. The, the Biden administration is trying very hard to not go to war with Iran. Now, cynics will say that the reason is because the Biden administration is cozy with Iran. And that's pretty easy to be cynical when the United States has been sending, you know, bags of cash to Iran um, and basically giving them whatever they want in appeasement when it comes to their nuclear weapons program, which is not a peaceful nuclear power program. Everybody on the planet, except for the Biden administration, and actually I shouldn't say that because the Biden administration knows what the score is in Iran. It just simply is willing to allow the Iranians to gain technology that would inflame the Middle East. And I mean, in a lot of ways, not just rhetorically, but could inflame the Middle East as the Iranians get nuclear capability that they could go after Israel or any other target uh, that they would choose to in the Middle East. And so um, that's, that's number one, is that it's the Biden administration's reluctance to hit hard against Iran because they've spent a lot of diplomacy, a lot of time and effort trying to build a closer relationship with Iran, and they don't want to see that destroyed by this war that's going on between Israel and Hamas that's causing these Iranian proxies to attack shipping um, in, in the Middle East, which is eventually going to cause serious problems to the world economy. So you, you can be, you know, you can say that as a skeptic that that's, that's Biden's main uh, issue is not wanting to mess up everything that he's done with Iran. Um, and, and then you can say, well, there's another side to the coin that says that the president honestly doesn't want to escalate the war in the Middle East. 
He wants to try to hit Iran without hitting them directly so that maybe they'll call off the dogs, they'll get their proxies to back off, and the more that the United States and Great Britain and other allies goes after Iran, the more likely it is they will back up. But if we strike them directly, we could draw China and Russia into the fray. Now, China's, uh, Russia's got its hands full right now. And honestly, so do, so do the Chinese because the Chinese economy is tanking. And so there's a lot of people that are saying, look, we don't have to worry about Russia and China coming to the rescue because Russia is having its own issues, obviously, in the war against Ukraine. And the Chinese right now try to figure out how to put their economy back together. So, um, I, you know, what's really true here? Um, I think, it, again, it's possible that both things are true. I think the Biden administration would like to come out of this with some kind of relationship with Iran, even though Iran is fueling these militant groups, including Hamas, that's causing all these problems in the Middle East, that the Biden administration still wants to cling to some kind of hope that the Iranian regime can be overthrown from within or that Iran will somehow become a good actor in the Middle East over time if they're appeased enough. And that's a terrible strategy. Um, I, I don't think that, that Iran wants a direct war with the United States. I, I think if the United States were to attack targets in Iran, that Iran would still not respond with all-out war. I don't think the Chinese are prepared to go to war with the United States and Great Britain. I mean, it's a good thing that the British are assisting the United States in this. Uh, it's also uh, a good step forward that the European Union is sending a bunch of ships um, into the Red Sea and into these areas that are being affected in order to help the United States and Great Britain to provide uh, support and protection to the shipping lanes. I mean, that, uh, the European Union recognizes how much they're dependent on that, and so they're beginning to put some skin in the game, and, and, and that's a good thing. And so when the Iranians see this, hopefully, I mean, the hope is here, and beyond the politics, I mean, obviously the politics is to go after the Biden administration because the attacks are continuing, and the Biden administration appears to be weak because it's not going directly after Iran, but going after the proxies that a lot of people say is not going to do anything to deter Iran. That's the political side of this. But the other side of it is to look at it as a good thing that the European Union is beginning to get involved to some level, that the British are actually willing to fly missions with the United States to help us to come after um, these proxies. And the hope is that attacking the proxies, attacking the Quds Force, is sending a message to Iran and basically saying, look, the next thing that could happen here is that we come after you and the Iranians do not want war. There, I, I believe that that's true. I, I think as long as they're proxies, they can send their proxies out to, to wreak havoc and to cause confusion and to uh, just keep the world unstable, they're perfectly happy. But when it comes to having to pony up and actually go to war with the United States and maybe all of our allies, uh, no, I don't, I don't think they're interested. I think they know that the regime itself would not survive that. And one thing about Iran, they are solely focused on the regime staying in power. That's what they want. And they know that a, a devastating attack by the United States could um, cause all the power of the regime to be broken um, and there'd be a new ruling class in Iran. Pentagon says they're still assessing the effects of the strikes, uh, but they, they say so far they caused a significant amount of damage to the militants' command and control structure. They also said that more strikes will be coming and that they have not ruled out striking Iran directly. In fact, uh, you had Jake Sullivan, uh, who's the national security advisor, Sunday on Meet the Press, and this is what he had to say. Are strikes inside Iran off the table? Uh, again, Kristen, sitting here on television, it would not be wise for me uh, to talk about what we're ruling in and ruling out. So you're not ruling it out? I'll just say the same thing one more time, which is I'm not going to get into what's on the table and off the table when it comes to the American response. Okay, so in other words, if they're not ruling it out, then that's pretty much leaving it on the table, which is what 
really needs to happen. See, the problem here is when the Biden administration begins to telegraph these attacks, then if as long as Iran knows that they're going to be safe, they're not going to pay a whole lot of attention to what happens to their proxies. Because the main thing, again, what does Iran want? What Iran wants is to be able to stay in power. Now, uh, the Speaker of the House, Mike, uh, Speaker Johnson, is uh, basically saying, look, the Biden administration is, is not doing its job when it comes to going after Iran. And he came out, and in his interview on the Sunday shows over the weekend, um, he was willing to go a little bit further with his criticism of the president. Here is Speaker Johnson on Meet the Press. We need to make absolutely clear to Iran that nothing is off the table. You know, we maintain peace through strength. That was the Reagan doctrine. That's what President Trump uh, continued, and that's what we have to do right now. We, we should not be appeasing Iran. That's what the Biden administration has been doing for the last three years. We are projecting weakness on the world stage. And frankly, Kristen, that is why our adversaries are acting so provocatively. What we need to be doing right now is turning up the heat on Iran. We need to act to, to decimate the uh, Iran Central Bank, the, the assets that they've held there. We, we need to uh, lean on international banks to seize the assets of Iranian proxies. We need to, to put big-time pressure, maximum pressure, on their oil exports. There's a lot that we could do to Iran to send a message instead of this appeasement strategy. It's just simply Including not strikes, Mr. Speaker? Including strikes, just to be clear? It should, it should not be off the table. Okay, that's, uh, that's Speaker Mike Johnson on Meet the Press. Um, uh, and and he's, he's obviously right. And, and by the way, the administration has said that they're going to ramp up sanctions to Iran uh, as well as conduct these strikes against their proxies. Now, we'll, don't hold your breath. Uh, let's wait and see. What happens? It would take a lot of sanctions to overcome what the Biden administration has already done to prop up Iran, because the speaker's absolutely right. For three years, there's been nothing but appeasement when it comes to Iran, which is what has, has emboldened them to allow their proxies to make direct attacks against United States military vessels. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And United States military bases and to kill American soldiers, to kill and wound American soldiers. Why would they think that they could get away with that, attacking the most powerful military in the world? Well, they think they can get away with it because Joe Biden is president of the United States, and he's demonstrated nothing but appeasement toward Iran for three years. Um, and I think the speaker is exactly right about that. And what needs to be ramped up is the ability to cut off the lifeblood of Iran, including their oil. You know, this, notice the speaker mentioned uh, making sure that their oil experts are affected by whatever sanctions that we're able to come up with. All right, um, shifting gears here just a little bit. Both, both Biden and Trump won big in different arenas over the weekend. President Biden, on his first binding primary in South Carolina, he won big, 96% of the vote. Mariana Williamson and Dean Phillips got about 2% of the vote apiece. Um, I think if you look at the actual totals, Biden was up at 97 percent because uh, I think uh, Williamson got 1.7 percent and Dean Phillips got 2.1 or something like that, or 2.2. And I think I got that backwards. Anyway, Marianna Williamson came up and beat Dean Phillips in South Carolina, which um, the Phillips campaign can't be too happy about. I mean, they took about 20 percent of the vote in New Hampshire. Uh, they thought they might have some kind of actual – uh, campaign that they could mount against the Biden administration. Uh, it's not going to happen. Biden's on. Biden's the candidate. They, these pe Williams, Williamson and Phillips are are done. Um, now, whether they'll drop out or not is a different story. Um, and when when we look at um, what happened with uh, President Trump, of course, in New Hampshire and where he is right now in South Carolina, he's leading by 26 points. Uh, Nikki Haley said that she needs to get to the 43 or 44% benchmark in South Carolina that she got in New Hampshire to help keep her in the race. Um, she's at 32% right now. And that, I mean, that's not, a, that's not enough. I don't know if her uh, benefactors or the billionaires that are backing her to keep her in the race for a little bit longer are going to be willing to keep spending their money if, in fact, Trump wins South Carolina by, by somewhere between 26 and 30 percent of the vote, and Nikki Haley doesn't get over 30, 35 percent. Uh, she was speaking down on the coast 
um, on Sunday, and she's still um, same. She's giving the same speech, which you know she's hoping that she's going to be able to cut into Biden's lead. Or, excuse me, to Trump's lead here in South Carolina. Um, she's talking about the fact that she voted for Trump twice, but chaos and is what follows him, and that's kind of her message. She's been on the attack against President Trump because she really doesn't have anything to lose uh, at this point, and uh, in terms of holding fire on going after Trump. I think she's, it's pretty clear she's not going to get a position likely in the Trump administration, so she's just unloading the wagon, trying to stay in the race, trying to get enough points to get to Super Tuesday, um, for what reason, we don't know. But now one of the things that I believe that she was trying to stay in the race for was in the event that President Trump's legal challenges caused him to falter somewhere along the way, either because of the courtroom or because of public opinion. Well, we know that public opinion um, is pretty much pegged at where it's going to be. There are those who don't like the fact that President Trump has legal troubles and they've pretty much made up their mind they're not going to vote for him. Now, when they actually get in the voting booth and they've got to choose between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, I still think there's a chance that even people that are concerned about the legal troubles may flip at that, at that point. But um, in Fulton County, Georgia, this is the big win that Trump got over the weekend. In Fulton County, Georgia, um, Fonnie Willis admitted to an affair with lead Trump prosecutor Nathan Wade, and she also confessed that she and Wade took trips together while she was being paid, while he, rather, was being paid north of $600,000 for his work. And, of course, Nathan Wade has no particular experience in prosecuting a RICO case. I mean, he came to work without the prerequisite uh, abilities to carry out his job. And so now the question is, what really was his job? And those questions are continued to mount in Georgia, as Willis is coming clean about this, and admitting that all of this is true. And so that's going to affect the case. We don't know how it's going to affect the case in Georgia, but let's just pretty much say that that, that case is in limbo. Now, President Trump's January 6th case was scheduled to begin, I think it was March 6th. It was sometime at the beginning of March. We're getting about a month away, uh, but it's been removed from the docket pending a decision by the Supreme Court. So the judge, a judge removed the case from the docket because they're going to wait on the decision on presidential immunity. And that could take months to determine the immunity case. So what was Trump's goal all along in with all these legal issues is to delay until after the election. And since Jack Smith's January 6th trial was the last trial standing with a chance to proceed before the election, it looks like the legal runway might be clear for Trump as he begins to campaign against Biden. Now, there's some things that could happen here um, between now and the election. And one of them is that the New York case could heat up again. I mean, you've got basically New York the, the, was willing to step back and let the January 6th case take precedent the documents case down in Florida has already been put off until after the election. You've got this mess down in Georgia that's likely going to mean that even if they were to have a trial, which I, I don't think they're going to be able to do that now before the election, if Trump were to be convicted of something, um, he could, I mean, basically um, he's, he's got grounds for appeal that would that could take years. And so I doubt that the Georgia trial is going to go forward. January 6th was the one that had the best chance. Now, if if the, the New York case was put on hold waiting to see what the outcome of the January 6th case would be, now it's possible that New York could decide that it's going to go ahead with its prosecution of Trump on um, election fraud charges. I mean, the, basically the election charges are that he used campaign money to pay off Stormy Daniels. So that case could go forward now that the January 6th case has been put on hold, but I doubt it. I, I don't think, I, I still think that they're going to let that sit um, until, because they pretty much said that the January 6th case was going to take precedent. So that's where we are. Um, President Biden uh, gets a big win in South Carolina. Nobody's surprised about that. Everybody expected him to win. He won by a ton. I mean, 96, 97% of the vote, depending on how you calculate Marianna Williamson and uh, um, uh, Dean Phillips' uh, share of the vote in South Carolina. 
But, you know, Biden got what he wanted. He wanted the first primary where his name would be on the ballot to be an overwhelming victory. And that's what happened. Now, tomorrow, we're going to talk a little bit about some, you know, you, you talk about the center candidates, the no-labels candidates that might emerge in this election. What the Biden administration is concerned about right now is attacks coming from the left, not from the middle. And so we're going to begin to talk about some of those attacks that are coming at the Biden administration from the left. He's got, he's got a problem on his left flank, and it has a lot to do with his support of Israel. Um, he can't seem to be, well, he's already seemed to be weak in his support of Israel, but the weaker, uh, I mean, the, the fact that he is not demanding an, an immediate end to the war has a lot of the people that are on the left that support him talking about just not showing up or maybe supporting somebody else, although I don't know who that would be. Um, it, it just it seems to me that there's nobody else out there that's going to do what they want done. All right, but we'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow. I want to talk about for a second about Carl Weathers, just because we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. It's not a um, political news item, but, uh, you know, I mean, you got to remember, my first date with my wife was to see Rocky back in 1970. What was it, 77? Yeah, it had been 77 because it was the spring of 1977. And, of course, that's the first time I saw Carl Weathers as Apollo Creed. And, um, I mean, it was just he, he was a good actor. Um, I, I, I mean, he was in a lot of other or several other things. I mean, his, his, he's most well-known, obviously, for the Rocky franchise. But let me just read a little bit of this from The Federalist that talks about his history. Um, and then we'll just say to um, Carl Weathers that we, we, we pray that he'll rest in peace. I don't know what his relationship with the Lord was like. I don't know if he was a believer. I've never heard him give a testimony to that fact. But um, he was a good entertainer. He was a good actor. Uh, this is coming from the Federalist today. He wasn't destined to be a star on the field, saving, saying of himself, because he, he went, he played football. He played at, um, in, uh, in his college, in college, and I can't remember, let's see, I was looking to see where he played in college, where he played his college football. But he ended up in the NFL in 1971, um, and he played for the Oakland Raiders for one season after the first game of his second season, head coach John Madden cut him, telling him, look, you're just too sensitive. Well, from there, he went to the Canadian Football League, and he played for the BC Lions for 13 games before retiring from the sport in 1974. And at that point, he was pursuing his true passion. He got his start in acting with, a, with small roles before landing leading roles in some pretty big films, but it was the role of Apollo Creed that launched his career. After playing Creed in the breakout hit that was Rocky, Weathers would go on to act in films. Of course, he was in Rocky II and Rocky III. Um, but then he was in the Predator. He was in Predator. Action Jackson was another movie he made. Happy Gilmore, Creed, uh, Toy Story 4. He did the voicing in that. Um, and he did a, a really good job in The Mandalorian, for those of you that are Star Wars fans and followed The Mandalorian, uh, maybe on Disney+. Plus. Uh, he was excellent in that movie, his career in that series. His career was prolific, even if he never made it into elected office, unlike two of his co-stars. And there were some who believed that Carl Weathers was going to run for office at, at some point. He never did, um, but he spent a lifetime of pretty much entertaining everybody um, and doing it very well. And um, I just wanted to acknowledge his passing because, um, you know, when you think about your first date and the people that were in that movie, and you've been, when, especially when you've been married 43 years happily to the same woman, you just kind of want to go back and remember the people that were part of that. And Carl Weathers was part of it, and I, I appreciate his career. All right, um, uh, let's talk about the provisions of this Senate bill. Now, you, you know, we've been waiting, what, for months now? Um, and Senator Langford over in as a Republican in the Senate has been working overtime trying to come up with some kind of compromise bill that would restore Ukraine funding, that would allow funding to go to Taiwan, funding to go to Israel, but would also 
give uh, a substantial amount of money to border security would change the law and shut down the crisis that we're having at the border. So finally, the text of this thing came out over the weekend. Now, according to the New York Times, and this is, I'm going to mispronounce this name, I'm sure, but it's Caron, it's K-A-R-O-U-N, not Karen, but Caron um, Demergian, Demergian, D-E-M-I-R-J-I-A-N. She's the, the one who's writing about this today at the New York Times, and she's giving the details of what we know so far that's in the bill. Like I said, it's 370 pages. I got through about 70 pages of it last night. Senate Republicans and Democrats on Sunday unveiled a $118.3 billion compromise bill to crack down on unlawful migration across the U.S. border with Mexico and speed critical security aid to Ukraine. Uh, The bill would make it more difficult to claim asylum, vastly expanding detention capacity, and effectively shutting down the border to new entrants if more than an average of 5,000 migrants per day try to cross over unlawfully in the course of a week or more than 8,500 attempt to cross in any given day. Now, the, the part of this, I'm going to stop right here because the, the, from the outset, I cannot understand why, when you have a crisis of the magnitude that you have at the border, that you would begin any kind of bill by saying, we're going to have a minimum standard. I mean, we already know that we've had 6 million at least, and some estimates go as high as 10 million, to, because you have to count the getaways. You have to at least estimate that, that, who have crossed into the United States illegally since Biden has been in office. And so why set some kind of standard? I mean, this is appeasement to progressives who want to see a flow of illegal immigrants continue to come into the country. So, you know, we got to get to 5,000 per day before we shut down the border. The border needs to be shut down right now until we figure out a way to reform the system that allows us to gain control over the over who and how many people are coming into this country on a regular basis. And that shouldn't be some kind of arbitrary number to me of an average of 5,000 when we've seen the number of crossings that we already have. I'm supposed to trust the Biden administration. I'm supposed to trust uh, Alejandro Mayorkas that he's going to actually enforce a new law when he's not enforcing the laws that are on the books right now. Some of those laws he's enforcing, but the vast majority are being manipulated in order to allow what's happening at the border to happen. The measure includes $20.2 billion to pay for improvements to border security, including hiring new asylum officers and border security agents, expanding the number of available detention beds, and increasing screenings for fentanyl and other illicit drugs. Okay, as far as I'm concerned, we need more border uh, security. We need more border patrol. We need more people in the system to speed up the process of determining amnesty so that the people that have no claim are not simply released into the country and given a court date, but they're actually able to be adjudicated quickly and either allowed to stay because they fit the definition or they're sent back to whatever their country of origin is. So I'm, if, if, it, if that's, that's a part of the bill that I think is probably a good thing, uh, although it's not enough. It also includes $60.1 billion for Ukraine, $14.1 billion in security assistance for Israel, $10 billion in humanitarian aid for civilians in conflict zones, including Gaza, the West Bank, and Ukraine. But it falls short of several Republican demands, according to the New York Times, including ramping up border wall construction and limiting parole and related programs that allow migrants to live and work legally in the United States without visas while they await hearings on their immigration claims, sometimes for years. It's actually oftentimes for years. And and this is part of these parole programs. I mean, as as long as the parole program stays in place, where the president can just, they can make a decision about paroling people into the country um, and and allowing their uh, for them to be able to work and to live in the United States until they get a court date, even if they ramp up the number of judges that are available to adjudicate these cases. Once they get into the interior of the United States, then they're going to be part of the ongoing debate 
of what you do with all the illegal immigrants that are here and have become, for one, in one way or another, ingrained in our society through work and their family being here. Uh, and so unless the bill deals with the issue of the parole program, I, I don't think it's got any chance to pass, and I don't think it should pass. Uh, the bill preserves the president's parole authority and does not count people entering under group-based programs or unaccompanied minors toward the threshold of daily migrant encounters that would trigger a border shutdown. Well, there you go. If you're going to leave loopholes in the shutdown where you're only going to count up to 5,000, but, oh, oh, you can't count these groups that are coming from Venezuela. If we've got an arrangement with a country that is allowing certain groups to come into the country, then that's not going to be counted toward triggering the shutdown, and we're not going to count unaccompanied minors, which is a, a, a large number of, of those that are trying to get in. Uh, the bill would raise the bar for migrants claiming a credible fear of persecution if returned to their home countries and would create a new voluntary re uh, repatriation program for the government to fly migrants back home on commercial airlines. So we're going we're gonna to take and use taxpayer dollars to, to transport people who we allowed in and then decide they have to be deported. We're going to take them back. Uh, it would also direct that migrants with a reasonable fear of, of persecution rather, be released to live and work in the country and allow immigration officials or officers to grant asylum status on the spot to migrants presenting especially compelling cases. The bill would create a review board to hear any appeals of the decisions instead of sending such cases to the courts with the goal of making final asylum determinations within six months. When you look at the backlog, the number of people that are waiting, and there's there's no way that they're going to be able to hire enough people at this point to deal with the backlog if they're going to continue to allow people to come in to the United States up to 5,000, an average of 5,000 a day, or, or just under that amount. The bill includes a measure to provide a government-funded lawyer to any unaccompanied children aged 13 or younger and to give any migrant put into expedited removal proceedings 72 hours to find a lawyer to contest deportation. Now, look, I've, I've, I have some sympathy about this because, again, from a Christian worldview perspective, you have to think about these, these children, particularly unaccompanied, these unaccompanied minors that are showing up at the border for them to be able to get um, a lawyer or somebody to help them, to direct them, I don't think is unreasonable. And I know a lot of people are going to be mad about that. I get it. But I look, we're talking about children. We're talking about, again, when you, when you talk about life and you talk about any person, human being, you've got to talk about the fact that they're created in the image of God and they de deserve respect. And you can't just have unaccompanied children what, what are you going to do if you don't give them some representation or some kind of help to navigate the system to even know what to do once they get into the country? Um, adults, they have 72 hours to find a lawyer to contest deportation. If they don't find somebody by then, then uh, deportation is the next step. To relieve backlogs, the bill would also create 50,000 new green card eligible visas per year for five years, 32,000 of which would be for families, 18,000 would be for employment-based visas. Now that's, that's expanding the visa program. Um, there are those who would argue that this would allow families to stay together, which again, to me, is a legitimate Christian worldview goal, is to keep families together. We don't, we don't want to see... Uh, even people that are coming into this country illegally to be separated because of the current law that they can't get a visa as a family if we're going to allow families to come in. And then 18000 for employment-based visas. Do we need that many people coming into the country? There, there are those who look at the employment opportunities that are out there that mostly uh, immigrants are taking and they would say, yes, that we've got to have that many. Now, I think that's debatable. Um, I, you know, 
I, I don't know what the exact number is in terms of our employment opportunities and, and how many we need to, to keep that going. But I know this, any plan that's going to expand access to people coming across the border illegally until the American people are convinced that the border is in some meaningful way secure, not secure because the uh, presidential press secretary says it's secure, not secure because the president or Mayorkas says it's secure, but secure because you can look at the numbers and see that we've got some kind of immigration process that has a tight border with people being let in on a need-to-be-let-in basis. But you can't, the, the people who want to try to tackle all this together, and, and I said this to Matt Sorens. I mean, I, I appreciate Matt, and I appreciate World Relief, and I know what they're trying to, uh, to do is inject a Christian worldview into the immigration process. And, and by the way, World Relief, it's, it, it, they do want uh, or, um, you, you know, they want a secure border. It's not that they don't, uh, but they also want some type of immigration reform that helps alleviate the pressure on a lot of people that are, that are either being detained or being released without a court date. Um, and, and so, you know, the, but until, and, and with all due respect to every organization that would like to see the humanitarian side of, of the border uh, or of our immigration system to be considered it's going to have to come with a secure border, and the American people have got to believe. I think the American. I don't think the American people want to have inhumane treatment of people at the border, but I think they want to see actual results of what the border looks like when we have border security before we begin to to sort of work through all of the processes that would have to be in place in order for a orderly immigration system to work. Uh, it doesn't work without border security. It has to begin with that. Um, all right, it would also ensure that the children of H-1B visa holders do not lose their green card eligibility once they become adults and create a new temporary visa category to let non-citizens visit U.S.-based family. Uh, the measure incorporates a version of the Afghan Adjustment Act, which creates a pathway to citizenship for Afghans who fled to the United States after the Taliban takeover. Further complicating the bill's path, several left-wing Democratic senators have expressed uneasiness with the idea of sending military aid to Israel without certain conditions attached. In other words, they, they don't want any money to go to Israel unless there's going to be the guarantee of a two-state solution, there's going to be the guarantee of a Palestinian state in place, and Israel's not going to do that. I mean, the two-state solution is a fairy tale, at least in the environment that we have in the Middle East right now. I mean, the Palestinians and Hamas want a one-state solution, and that state doesn't include the Jewish people. And until the requirement for a two-state solution is respect between the two states, there's not going to be one. You can't have a two-state solution when one of the participants says from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I mean, that's the elimination of the Jewish people and the establishment of one state. So to, to start talking about having a two-state solution until that is solved, no, uh, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Um, Let's see. They have called for votes on amendments stipulating that weapons be used in keeping with international law, that humanitarian aid not be hindered, and that Congress retain the power to scrutinize any supplies sent to Israel. In other words, they, they, they want to release aid, but they don't want to trust the, the, the Israelis, who are our number one allies in the Middle East. Um, and they, so that all these restrictions they want to put on the aid going to Israel so they can tell the Israeli government how they ought to use it and how they ought to prosecute the war. And that's, that's not going to fly. Even if those requirements were put on the aid, I don't think Israel would comply because they're going to defend themselves and they're going to pursue the war against Hamas in as a humane way as possible knowing that Hamas makes it almost impossible to do that. 
Those sentiments could be further inflamed by a provision in the bill that prohibits any of the humanitarian aid from being distributed through the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA. Why in the world would you give any money to an organization that has a large percentage of its workers involved with Hamas? We talked about this last week. I mean, it, and they had dozens of people from uh, from the from the United Nations Relief and Works Agency actually participated in the attacks against Hamas against Israel with Hamas. I mean, there's no way that the United States would give them a penny. And there are those progressives who this is what they want. Now, what about the chances of this bill passing? Well, my dad used to have a saying. They're slim and none, and slim just left town. Um, I, I really don't think the bill is going to pass. It's going to have a hard time in the Senate uh, because they're at, of what we just talked about. The uh, conservative senators are going to want more when it comes to border security before they're willing to expand any kind of programs that would allow people to stay. Um, I think the conservatives in the Senate would be open to spending money to try to increase border patrol agents and to increase the number of judges and the ability for the government to be able to expedite some of these uh, asylum cases. But there's no way that they're going to support a bill that doesn't go far enough in closing the border. And I, I think this, that's the problem with this bill. And that's with all due respect to Senator Langford, by the way who's getting thrown under the bus. I mean, people are saying that this is the end of his career, that he's turned into some kind of a progressive when it comes to border security. I don't think that's true. I mean, Senator Langford has been trying to solve a problem. Maybe we don't like his solution, but that doesn't mean that he should be thrown under the bus. He's a, he's a good senator. He's a conservative senator. Um, negotiating with a Democrat majority means that you give up a lot of what you want in order to get more, at least some, of what you, of what you want. And then they get some of what they want. And this is where they've come, the, this is the plan that they've come to. Um, I don't think it has much of a chance. In fact, uh, Speaker Johnson says even if it passes the Senate that it's not going to get through the House. Speaker Johnson has advanced a, a separate bill for Israeli security, uh, let's see, let me get to, because I want to tell you exactly. It's a clean Israel package that would be, let's see, the measure, measure is departure from legislation passed by the House in early November with the help of a small group of Democrats who broke ranks. That coupled $14.3 billion in support for Israel with an offset slashing the same amount of funds meant for the Internal Revenue Service. Um, Johnson said... Given the Senate's failure to move appropriate legislation in a timely fashion and the perilous circumstances currently facing Israel, the House will continue to lead. Next week, we will take up and pass a clean, standalone Israel supplemental package. That's what Johnson said Saturday in a letter. During debate in the House and in numerous subsequent statements, Democrats made clear that their primary objection to the original House bill was with its offsets, Johnson added. The Senate will no longer have excuses, however, misguided against swift passage of a critical support for Israel. So in other words, they're going to, the, the House's strategy right now, Johnson's strategy, is to pass a clean bill, send it over the Senate, and let the Senate chew on that. And he seems to think that he's got enough Democrats and, of course, all of his Republicans to agree uh, to do this. All right, uh, let's move on. I wanted to grab a couple of other stories quickly. Uh, it's been a bad week for the squad. Now, of course, you know who the members of the squad are. You've got Corey Bush. You've got Jamal Bowman. You've got Ilhan Omar. Um, you've, and you've got Rashida Tlaib. And a lot of them, according to Jared Stepman over the Daily Signal, um, have had a, kind of a, a rough week. Um, Jamal Bowman... Well, of course, he's the socialist former high school principal who claims to not know what a fire alarm is, in case uh, you, don't, you don't remember. He got himself in hot water for being too radical, even for his left-wing allies. On Monday, the Daily Beast reported on a blog that he posted when he was a high school principal in New York. The blog was filled with 9-11 conspiracy theories and included this poem. Planes used as missiles target the Twin Towers. 
30 minutes later, both buildings collapsed onto themselves. Later in the day, Building 7 also collapsed. Hmm. Multiple explosions heard before and during the collapse. Hmm. Allegedly, two other planes, the Pentagon, Pennsylvania, hijacked by terrorists, minimal damage done, minimal, minimal, minimal debris found. Hmm. Well, I, I don't know that that's exactly um, a world-shattering poem, but it kind of reveals where Jamal Bowman was on all the conspiracy theories when it comes to 9-11, and it's gotten him to some, into some trouble this past week. Corey Bush is in a little bit of trouble with federal authorities. She's currently under investigation by the Justice Department for using taxpayer money on private security, paying it to a man who is now her husband. Quote, Bush's husband and former security guard, uh, Courtney Merritts, who she married in February of 2023, has pocketed more than $100,000 in payments since Bush added him to her campaign's payroll in January of 2022 for what they marked as security payments before switching their description to wage expenses in April. That's according to Fox News. So Corey Bush getting in some trouble this past week. And maybe the most infamous member of the squad, according to the Daily Signal, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, lashed out at the Biden administration for pulling funding for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, UNRWA. Quote, cutting off support to UNRWA, the primary source of humanitarian aid to 2 million-plus Gazans, is unacceptable. I guess what is acceptable to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the fact that a large number of the people that work at that agency are working with Hamas and actually participated with Hamas in killing uh, Jews on January the, on uh, October 6th. So... Uh, um, she goes on, among an organization of 13,000 U.N. aid workers risking the starvation of millions over grave allegations of 12 is indefensible. The U.S. should restore aid immediately. It's not just 12. U.S. sent $122 million to the agency since October, according to the New York Post, before pulling the plug. Uh, a Wall Street Journal report revealed that employees of the agency were directly linked to October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. It also found that about 10% of the 12,000-person staff were linked to terrorist organizations in Gaza. So you're not talking about 12 people. You're talking about 10% of the people who work there. And so this is, this is another way that... Um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I mean, she's catching a lot of heat for this, for saying that the money should keep going. Ilhan Omar, uh, she was in the news for a speech that she gave in the Somali language at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Minneapolis on January 27th. In the speech, she seemed to be declaring herself Somali first, Muslim second. America apparently didn't even rank in her hierarchy except for the purpose of using American power to settle political problems on behalf of Somalia. Quote, we as Somalians, we love each other, Omar said in a translation of the speech posted on X by conservative Alexandria, uh, Virginia lawyer Mariana Medvin. Quote, these are, are areas of friction that led us to kill each other, but in reality we are an organized society, brothers and sisters, people of the same blood, people who know they are Somalians first, Muslims second. She later insisted that the translation wasn't accurate, but it seems, still seems like from what she said in either version that she feels that her primary responsibility is to Somalia and not the United States. And that caused a lot of people to declare that she needs to be um, removed. I mean, if, if her primary allegiance as a member of Congress is not to the United States, what, why is she sitting in that seat? Um, Ayanna Presley is also having a little bit of a scandal. Uh, she called the closure this week of a Walgreens drugstore in the Roxbury area of Boston a case of the company engaging in a life-threatening act of racial and economic discrimination. She said this in a speech that she made on Tuesday of this past week. She essentially called Walgreens racist for closing their locations due to crime and a lack of profitability. So I guess she thinks that Walgreens just needs to continue regardless of how, the, how many of their employees are in danger 
or how much danger the store is in of being robbed because of the crime rate in Boston. So, anyway, that's the squad not having a good week. And as, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I'm, I, I, I really, the, the squad has become more than just a progressive mouthpiece. I mean, they are engaging in behavior and rhetoric right now that is undermining directly to the United States. And that's been true for Rashida Tlaib for a long time and Ilhan Omar, but now it's spreading to these others. Um, and I, I hope the voters, I mean, they've actually got a, um, a, a st fairly strong primary challenge. I hope the voters are paying attention to this and that they vote them out of office. All right, finally, um, I wanted to get to this story quickly today. Parents' rights groups rip uh, astonishing BLM week of action curriculums promoting queer-affirming principles. This is coming from Fox News. As the Black Lives Matter week of action kicks off this week in liberal school districts across the country, one parents' rights group is taking aim at the controversial principles uh, in seeking to impart that it is seeking to impart on young students including fostering a queer-affirming network and disrupting the Western-prescribed nuclear family structure. I mean, can you—trying to, to disrupt the nuclear family in the West, that's part of the aim of Black Lives Matter's week of action that runs starting today through the 9th. Black Lives Matter, the, the group says it's founded on a list of four demands— including mandating black history and ethnic study courses, as well as 13 guiding principles, such as promoting trans ideology and globalism. A report released Monday by Parents Defending Education, a grassroots organization dedicated to fighting indoctrination in the classroom, details the various BLM Week of Action curriculums being promoted by a number of high school districts in various states, as well as uh, past reputation of Hamas terrorists taking talking points by Black Lives Matter at school. The PDE's report rips many of the curriculum's critical approach to Israel, which appears to stem from Black Lives Matter at school's statement following the October 7th attack by Hamas terrorists that resulted in the murder and rape of more than 1,200 Israeli men, women, and children. Of course, we know that story and we've heard it, but we need to hear it, keep hearing it. That includes babies that were killed, and in the statement, the group blamed Israel for the attack. Quote, um, BLM at school wants to be clear in our recognition that this unfolding loss of Palestinian and Israeli lives is the direct, direct result of decades of Israeli settler colonialism, land dispossession, occupation, blockade, apartheid, and attempted genocide of millions of Palestinians. So they accuse Israel of all of this. By the way, I, in, in my opinion, none of that is true. Israel has given up land for peace, and they've never gotten anything in return except more attacks against with rocket attacks and everything else coming into the Israeli state. And, of course, on October 7, we saw the ultimate culmination of this, and yet Black Lives Matter still wants to use this week to promote the idea that Israel is the aggressor here. Um, they also, the report shows that concerning sentiment, the, uh, that concerning sentiment reflects within the principles of BLM week of action, including, uh, the curriculum being pushed by the Chicago teachers union that plans to promote a 10 point plan from the black Panther party, a radical organization, most prominent during the civil rights area era. The 10 point plan originally included a reference to robbery by the white man of the black community. Other versions replaced white man with capitalist, including the version that will be taught in, to Chicago school children this week. So this is, this is the problem. When you try to work for racial reconciliation, and there are, and there are a lot of conservatives, I mean, and, and particularly those like me who are followers of Jesus Christ that want to see racial reconciliation. They want to see peace between all races. And then you have a group like Black Lives Matter that's supposed to be the spokesperson for that, and yet they're embracing all of these radical progressive ideas and using this week as an opportunity to push, push an agenda that has very little to do with race and has everything to do with anti-Semitism, 
It has to do with promoting the trans uh, and same-sex, the LGBTQ agenda in the school. And what has that got to do with Black Lives Matter and the idea of racial reconciliation, except it's just an embrace of critical theory and progressive ideas being pushed on school children. All right, that's all the time that we've got for today. I want to thank you for listening to the program. We'll be back in the morning. And, of course, we got plenty to talk about, as you can hear. Oh, sorry about that. You've already heard me crank it up for today. So let's go out with our closing theme instead. And, of course, this is from Twyla Paris and God is in Control. I hope you have a great day. Um, hope you'll join me tomorrow at 730 on YouTube and Facebook. And that you'll check out the podcast. It should be up in about an hour. You can find it at Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Please listen to it. And if you like it, leave me a good review so that others will find it as well. God bless you. Have a good day.